guys. So, Spirit Tracks, right? Now, it's funny because I know most people have actually played Phantom Hourglass. Uh, well, I shouldn't say most, but more people I've talked to played Phantom Hourglass. Less people I've talked to have actually played Spirit Tracks, which I find to be a bit of a shame. Um, Spirit Tracks, in my opinion, uh, could probably be best described as a polished version of Phantom Hourglass, basically fixing most of the issues that game had and, and iterating on it in several ways. It still has a couple of problems, uh, which I'll be talking about as we go through this. It does also suffer from what I have come to know as the handheld problem. See, as I've been re-going through this entire series, which we're almost done, we've only got two games after this one, uh, I've noticed that the handheld games have a tendency to be more puzzle-heavy than the rest. Like, uh, the Oracles games are probably the most extreme example of this, but Oracles, Minish, uh, you know, Awakening, Phantom Hourglass, Spirit Tracks, well, all these games have their, their pluses and their minuses, all of them have story, all of them have, you know, combat and whatnot. The overall emphasis seems to be leaning much stronger on the, you know, the, the figuring out where to go, figuring out how to get to your next location, figuring out, you know, the dungeoning, the dungeoneering, whatever you want to call that, tends to be a much stronger focus, which admittedly is not fully my thing, which is probably why I tend to think of the handhelds a little less than I otherwise would, but they do it really well for the most part, and I don't know, it's, it's just something to mention, so for anybody out there who isn't fully into the Dungeoneering thing, uh, you know, be warned, I suppose. Uh, there are, uh, the, okay, so in this one, uh, I'll talk about some of the lore and the story reasons of why this stuff is, but you get around on a train, <laughs> rather than a ship, like you would in Phantom Hourglass, or Wind Waker for that matter, or just walking around, in, like in other games. And on the one hand, it's really awesome, because there's stuff to do while you're traveling around. Like, because basically, all you, you can either just set a route... Oh, excuse me. I'm fighting off a flu right now. Uh, or you can uh, shift tracks and, and manually decide where you're going, and that's basically it as far as your your how much you're interacting with it travel-wise. But as you're going, there's rocks you can blow up, there's the rabbits you can catch, there's enemies that'll attack you, there's te teleportation things you can hit, that you can speed up or slow down for certain areas, there's the mini-games if you're carrying a passenger, there's a little set of rules you can follow, which basically amounts to follow the signs. Um, if you're carrying cargo, there's a, a few other things you can do while you're carrying cargo in order to make sure that you don't lose your cargo as you're traveling. And, of course, there's constantly avoiding the uh, the Pac-Man trains, as I like to think of them as. I think they're just called Phantom Trains. I'm not actually sure. Dark Trains, maybe? I don't know. The trains that instantly kill you if you run into them. And, I mean, like, it goes to the game over screen, so you have to restart uh, from the beginning. But I like all that because it gives you stuff to do while you're traveling around. What I don't like is there's no option to avoid it. I've often said that if you force interaction during transit, all you're going to do is eventually make a chore. And that's one of the reasons why I feel most games would be better suited to have what is effectively an autopilot function. And this, you'd be like, well, well Phantom, uh, Spirit Tracks does have an autopilot. You can select your course and hit go. No, you can't. Because all that's going to do is, is select the tracks for you. It won't help you to dodge the Pac-Man trains. It won't help you to dodge the enemies that are going to be attacking you. You won't get any of the anything. If, if, if you have passengers, it won't help with that, etc. <sighs> Fighting off a sneeze. Oh my goodness. 
I do not feel well. So, yeah, uh, I, I feel like this game would have actually been better served by having just a plain old, I want to go here button. You know, I'll, I'll forego all the benefits on the route. And there are benefits. I mean, Lord knows you need a ton of rupees in this game. So it's not like uh, there's no, you know, there's no positive for doing that. Oh, my God. Sorry about that. But my overall point is that I do actually like the travel system in this game. I just feel it could deserve a little bit more polish to really be just, just bang on and be exactly what I want it to be. Um, I also One other thing that they did that they really improved from Phantom Hourglass. So in Phantom Hourglass, you have to go back to the Tumble of the Ocean King every time you get a thing in order to update it for various plotty reasons. And the thing is you had to go through that damn dungeon each time. As in, the floors you've already cleared each time. That's not true in Spirit Tracks. Now, you can, if for some bizarre reason you want to. But literally, in Spirit Tracks, you are uh, adding on to a tower as you go through it. And so, as you go through the game, you know, you can just walk up to the next level of the tower and be like, aha, and completely bypass the previous stuff. Uh, that was also some of the best puzzle design in the game, in my opinion. Well, I, I don't want to dispart, uh, speak ill of the game because, you know, quite a bit of the puzzle design in the actual temples and whatnot was good. But the Spirit Tower pu puzzles, those were awesome. Required, basically, it, it's, it was equivalent of kind of, like if you can imagine going to Ganon's Tower in LTTP, uh, for example, you know how it basically combines all of the puzzle design from the previous uh, elements of the game into one place? It's kind of like that, except if like after each dungeon you go there and you do like another story, another floor of Ganon's Tower, and then you go back to the game, and then you go back to Ganon's Tower. That's what it felt like. It was actually really fun. Um... And again, something I, I really enjoyed. Uh, they uh, they reduced the amount of grind required in some cases. For example, it is actually easier to gear up your vehicle, in this case the, uh, the train, the Epotamus Spirit Train, uh, rather, and, and than it was the ship in Phantom Hourglass. I don't even mention that mechanic in Phantom Hourglass because it was so vestigial. It is admittedly kind of vestigial here. It is mostly cosmetic. What it boils down to is this. If you equip an entire set of equipment on the train, you get six hearts instead of four. If you equip the entire golden set, you get eight instead of six or four. That's basically it. It doesn't actually change your speed or your stats or anything else, at least not that I could find. I actually looked into this and didn't find anything about that, which I feel is, is a bit of a shame. And again, something that could have been done better. They could have had, you know, this kind of track, or these kind of pieces increase your speed but lower your health. These ones increase your health but lower your speed. Uh, these ones increase the power of your gun so it one-shots stuff, you know. And they could have done stuff with that. Uh, they didn't shrug. It's not a negative. I'm just commenting. Um... The soundtrack of this game is phenomenal. Uh, I really recommend, if nothing else, you go listen to the, the Overworld song. Uh, there's actually a really cool thing, too. The way they did the sound design, the actual train you're in will, you know, chugga-chugga and choo-choo and all that stuff uh, in time to the music, to the Overworld music. Uh, forgive me, I just realized I need to check something really quick. So, you know, as you're... Uh, okay, I did. As you're zooming along... Sorry about that. As you're zooming along, you, uh, you're, you're, the, 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 you're moving in time to the music, which is really nice and I think actually adds uh, to the song. Uh, the controls overall feel uh, better. 
than Phantom Hourglass. Uh, for those of you not aware, this game effectively can be controlled 100% with the stylus, uh, which is always that one little thing I add an asterisk to whenever anybody wants to play Phantom Hourglass or Spirit Tracks. You, get, you play with the uh, stylus. It took some getting used to in Phantom Hourglass, but as I think I mentioned, uh, once you get used to it, it, it's actually quite intuitive. And they fixed a few things in this one. Now, instead of having to do these specific motions, you can just tap in a direction to do the dodge roll, which makes it a lot easier. And it's much easier to do the spin attack as well. And there's a couple other really small changes uh, that help make the combat flow and the controls flow a lot better. There were no points when I was playing through Spirit Tracks where I was like, ah, I died or I screwed up a puzzle because of control failure. And there were a couple like that in Phantom Hourglass. Um... So I think that's all I have to say about the gameplay. <clears throat> I'm lying. There's one more thing. This this game gets a lot of praise from me. I think Spirit Tracks is one of the better Zeldas. It's definitely in the top half, you know what I mean? There is one thing about this game that really pisses me off, and that one thing is the music minigame stuff. Now, music minigames have been a thing since, well basically since Ocarina. Uh, you could argue that they were in LTTP, but for all intents and purposes, Ocarina is what started that. You have to hit the buttons on the thing in order to do the songs. Not that bad. And then there was the Wind Waker, we had to do this, and there's Majora's, which also had the wind, the Ocarina, and so forth and so on. It's not a new thing. However, in this one, it is by far the single most irritating music game I've ever seen. You have to push the, push the, push the finger or push the stylus onto the control pad, right? So, hang on, let's just pretend my pen here is the stylus here. And you, you've got a, a flute, a pan flute, I believe. So, you know, the high notes to the low notes, all like this. And each one of them is color-coded, so you know which note is which. And you have to hit certain notes relatively in time. So, back, you know, going back and forth in order to, to you know, hit the orange note or the purple note or whatever, right? Now, I would have been fine with that. Then they added the fact that you have to blow into the frickin' mic in order to actually make the, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the note. And that's unacceptable. And I just realized I need to check something with my webcam. Because, uh, yeah, we're having some glitchy problems here. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Yeah, the sun just came blazing through there and I figured that would screw up the green screen. And I was right. Frickin' sun. It's always getting in the way, I'm telling you. Anyway, so you have to be doing this while blowing it. So I'm actually going to pull out my, my 3DS right here. I actually have my stylus, my awesome Hyrule stylus. This thing is cool. See this thing? You can't. It's green. Anyways, it's cool. Trust me. So the way you actually do this is you got the stylus and you've got the thing. Mike's right here. So it's like... And... Some of the mics don't really work as well as they should, and some of them have issues where, like, it'll machine gun and take input, even though you're blowing steadily. It got a little irritating. Uh, I actually failed the second uh, song. You have to do these songs. You literally cannot progress through the game without doing these songs, without doing these duets. I, uh, the second duet, or the third duet, I forget which one, but either way, there was one of the duets where you had to do a note, a note, skip over a note to another one, and then go back to this one. Uh, I failed that one, I kid you not, like 20 times in a row. As I'm just sitting here getting more and more frustrated trying to get it to acknowledge it properly. Because there's nothing I could do to improve my procedure. It was just the mic was screwing up, or I was just having trouble, you know, moving the, the panpipe. So, yeah, that was really, really irritating. 
Other than that, though, really good gameplay. I think that is all I have to say about gameplay. So let's talk about the story, because for once I actually have some story stuff to really discuss. So, for those of you not aware, uh, this game is set about a century, three generations after Phantom Hourglass, a.k.a. three generations after Wind Waker, since Phantom Hourglass happens like a month after Wind Waker. Um... And the people uh, the, on the on the pirate ship of Tetra and, and Link went out to find a new land, and they actually did. They found this whole new continent that they never touched before, and they're like, "Ha ha! This this is where we will make a land. There's nobody here. Excuse me. There's nobody here. Nobody. Excuse me. Who are these people? What's all this stuff on your head? Sorry." Eddie Izzard. But the point is, they found this new land, and they're like, yes, we will settle here. And so they went back, and they brought all the people. I mean, they, they like basically said, hey, guys, you can keep living on your islands, or you could come chill with us. And most of the people were like, oh, yes, we'll come with you. And so a fair, there was a fairly large exodus of people uh, from the great, the great Sea over to this new continent. Um, I find this hilarious, because for reasons I'll be discussing in the future, they were trying to really abandon the old and, and embrace the new, which I find hilarious because they called this place New Hyrule. Um, you could have come up with a different name. I'm just saying. <laughs> you don't have to... What, whatever. So, um, uh, now another interesting thing is several uh, denizens of the Phantom Sea uh, also ended up here. This still ties into my live stream idea, especially since it's very likely that Oceus deliberately let them come out, a.k.a. cycled their lives back into the material plane. Um... So that, that makes a good sense. So when they got to this land, they discovered this land had its own mythos. Uh, several, several years prior, there were these good spirits and there were these evil spirits, right? Excuse me. And uh, the over the the, uh, the the good spirits had been the ones basically responsible for taking care of everything for all intents and purposes. And the evil spirit was like, ha ha ha, well, well there were spirits, plural, but you know, the evil spirit's like, ha ha, we will destroy everything. And they all followed Maladus, the great evil demon king of doom. And there was this big war, and Maladus was sealed by the good spirits uh, using the spirit tracks. Now, the actual, there's tons of train puns everywhere in this game. I mean, one of the one of the main characters is called Engine, for God's sakes. It's not spelled that way, but that's pretty much how it's supposed to be pronounced, Engine. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, we have a couple of thoughts about this uh, right off the bat. First of all, the people were so eager to embrace this new culture, this new society, that they find this new land and like, aha, this new land, this, this is what we shall have, this is, we shall, we shall do everything that you people do. And so, a lot of the culture of New Hyrule is entirely centered around trains. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of this is the fact that there is a knighting ceremony for becoming a, a train engineer. Someone who runs and maintains trains. You are actually knighted by royalty for becoming a train engineer because it is that important of a job, because it is that pre relevant and prevalent to the society. And of course, when the train tracks go down as part of the plot, People are like, oh, God, how do we get from point A to point B? I mean, yeah, we can walk, I guess. But seriously, most people act as if they cannot function anymore. And that makes a degree of sense. If here in real life, we suddenly lost the ability to, for example, uh, have semis or lorries, uh, transit goods from one place to another, just like if they all vanished or something like that somehow, um, we would have some severe economic collapse going on. Because, yeah, we can still get from point A to point B, but that is how so much of our society works right now. So much of our economy, so much of our shipping sits on trucks, right? 
And so it's the same kind of idea that, you know, oh, God, what are we going to do without the train tracks? What are we going to do without the trains? And so we have a secondary motivation in addition to the fact that we want to, you know, save the land from the evil king. We're also trying to make it so the land can continue to function. There's shades of this throughout the game that we're not just doing this to beat the big bad, but we're doing it to help uh, help the society function, help everything keep going, which I really like. Um, the, uh, hang on, let me, let me go ahead and glance at my notes here. I've got, my notes are all over the place for this game, because it's a, it's a weird game to talk about. Um, so I love the, uh, <laughs> sorry, just reading my own notes here. I love the fact that this game probably, uh, is one of the stronger games for Zelda herself, the actual character to develop in. Uh, this is a unique Zelda, in other words, she's not in any other of the games, but she's kind of awesome, and it doesn't help that, or I guess it does help that you actually play as her. She's also your companion in this game, uh, if you don't know what I mean by that, you know, Navi in Ocarina, um, Tattle in Majora's, Midni, Midna, excuse me, Midna in Twilight Princess, etc. Uh, Zelda is actually your companion in this game. She's there constantly talking with you, interacting with you. And of course, you actually play as her for the Spirit Tower section itself, which, as I mentioned, were, were very awesome. Um, and controlling her is usually a treat. Uh, because she has her own complete move set, and it's relevant to which t floors you're on. Like, in the first few floors, she's just, you know, the big knight guy. Later on, she gets the shield thing. Later on, she gets the teleport ability. She gets the flaming sword ability, you know. It's cool. It's cool, the, the options she gets. Uh, there's also this great line where she's like, uh, I, I forget how she phrases it, but she says, don't worry, you go save me, I'll stay here. Actually, she says, you go save my body, because she's in spirit form at the moment. You know, you go save my body, I'll stay here and wait for you. I, I hear it's a long tradition of princesses. <laughs> and, of course, then that is immediately subverted, because she has to go with you in order for you to even do the very first puzzle. Um, I mention this as well, though, because this is part of her character development. Most of the characters don't really get a lot of development in spirit tracks. There's some characterization from Brian, uh, or Byron, Iron? I don't know how the heck to pronounce his name. Um, Engine, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of secondary characters get some decent characterization, but the only one who actually has a character growth is Zelda herself, which is funny when you think about it. Um, she, you can tell from the way things are phrased. You know, Chancellor Cole has basically taken over the country. He's been running everything and refusing to let her do anything, and most of the soldiers automatically like, well, you know, we should check the Chancellor Cole. You could tell he's just kind of slowly bullied her out of office for all intents and purposes. And she has lived her life completely sheltered. One of my favorite quotes in the game that really highlights this is when you go to the Northwest Quadrant, which is the snowy area, and she's like, oh my god, I've never seen snow before. Despite the fact that she lives right there and could just go up there and see it, she never seen snow in her life. That is how sheltered she's become. It makes me wonder how long this plan to that Cole has been working on has been in, in, uh, in, in under works. <coughs> Excuse me, for lack of a better word. Um, and I mention that because that's where she starts off. Now, she's still got a head on her shoulders. She's not, you know, a, a ditz. But she is very sheltered, very naive. Not stupid, naive. And remember, there is no Triforce of, of anything in this game. So that's, there's no wisdom involved here. It's just her. And as she progresses throughout the game, she experiences more, she learns more. You get the really strong sense because of the way her dialogue changes and how much more confident she gets. By, you know, as, as you beat each dungeon, as you get further on, she becomes more and more sure of herself. 
and she seems to find herself more. You get the strong impression that as she's adventuring, she is growing, she's learning, and by the end of the game, she is shown not only being an effective and capable combatant, but also a good ruler, and someone who is willing to actually put in the boring time of, of what ruling a kingdom is like, because there are several boring aspects to running a kingdom. So she becomes an effective leader, and a charismatic leader, as a result of her adventure. I really, really like that. Um, as an aside, I only comment on this because of its unusuality. Yes, that's a word I just came up with, or rather I've used it many times before. Um, there are only really two Zelda games where Zelda and Link are pretty much a couple. There, there's definite romantic uh, tendings there. This is one of them, and Skyward is the other one. Every other Zelda, it's much more debatable. And, you know, and it's either in, like, in the silly area works, like the comics or the books or whatever, or it's just people, you know, thinking, well, you know. Uh, for example, if I can segue for just a second, we know pretty much definitively that the Link and Zelda in Ocarina the ones in the, I guess, the child timeline, the one uh, where Link actually ended up, they didn't end up together. Link did have a bloodline, maybe. We'll talk about that next week. Um, but it wasn't with her. Her blood, royal bloodline went on regardless, right? His royal bloodline went on over there, two separate bloodlines. Um, so they obviously didn't end up together. But I mention this because there is a strong affection in this one. It actually feels like watching two, uh, well, normally I'd say teenagers, uh, but most people associate teenage romance with stupid things. But teenagers who aren't being stupid, if you can bear me with that kind of idea, uh, falling in love with each other between the two of those. They go very close. They, there's a strong friendship. There's a great connection between the two. There's a lot of surprising amount of chemistry for, for between a guy who can't talk and a woman who talks constantly. There's no joke in that. I'm just saying it's interesting the way they present that. And it's it's kind of heartwarming, you know. Uh, and I like that. I like the fact that these two end up uh, close like that. So props there. Um, I Let's see. Uh, now there's another uh, note I have here. Everyone who can see Zelda can see her for obvious reasons, because they are uh, spiritually connected, or because they are spirits themselves, or they have some kind of power that enables them to actually see her in spirit form, whereas most people can't. Link, however, can see her. Why is that? Well, there's two possible answers to this question, in my opinion. Answer number one, plot convenience. Valid possibility. Option two. During their brief visit, the two of them had already connected to the point where... Well, to go back to my Tetris analogy I use all the time, the two of them already were a fit for each other. That there is a reason the two of them actually grow so close and become so, so uh, comfortable and so well-coordinated with each other. Because they just fit each other. And so because they're on, for lack of a better word to put it, on the same wavelength, he can actually perceive her, whereas nobody else around her can. This would also make sense, given the fact that she's basically been completely disconnected from her people for so long, thanks to Cole's manipulations. So, oh, by the way, get it, Chancellor Cole, get it. They're, the puns are everywhere in this game. Um... So, the Phantoms, this is great. Uh, I mentioned the Phantoms back in, you know, Phantom Hourglass. Uh, it's never stated outright, but it's heavily implied that these are the same Phantoms. This is, uh, actually, why don't we save that for later? Let me make a brief note so I don't forget to talk about that. There we go. 
Um, because I think that ties into my last point, which I want to, which I want to save for last, like I normally do. Uh, so let's talk about the original purpose of the temples. If you notice, I've been doing this kind of discussion through most of the Zelda. It's like, what, what was the temple's actual purpose? This will be a much more interesting discussion in Twilight Princess, where each temple actually had a different purpose. In this game, sadly, the purpose of the temples is extremely obvious. These were temples to the good spirits made by the servants of the good spirits. That's it. That's all. There's really nothing else to add there. Um... I will say this, there's an interesting implication of the fact that the war between the good and the bad spirits has been going on this whole time. Just because Maladus was sealed doesn't mean they haven't still been, you know, in conflict with each other. And I always got the really strong impression that most of the creatures we're fighting are effectively either servants of the evil spirits or just evil spirits themselves. Um, in the similar manner to the uh, engine people, what do they call them, locomotives, I believe, are the servants of the light spirits. These big monsters are servants of... You know, the bad spirits. It's just really simple. Um, and it helps give that idea of that this realm has been fighting back and forth across these two ideals for some time. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, it is actually uh, possible that uh, this, uh, because of the, the when this game happened, that this battle between the good and the light spirits has actually happened in the other timeline uh, timelines as well. <laughs> But uh, I, I actually thought about that for a while, and I couldn't find any significant connection, so I decided to just mention it later when it'll become relevant. Um, the uh, I like the fact that Linebeck comes back, Linebeck the third, the third generation. Uh, one of the problems with this game is most of the descendants basically look the same as their ancestors, and anybody who's seen anything knows that that's not really true. Uh, there's actually a term for that in tropes. It's like Xerox uh, ancestor or something like that. But the point is, they did it for the same reason they did it in Phantom Hourglass, aka to reuse art assets so they wouldn't have to, to redevelop that. Or excuse me, not, not Phantom Hourglass. They did that for the same reason they did it in Majora's Mask, so they could reuse the art assets. In this case, at least, there's a pretty decent reason for it. It's because they're you know, literally descendants of the people who looked like that, so whatever, they just look the same. Shrug. But we see Lineback the Third. We see the new uh, Engine Masters and whatnot. Uh, of course, there is one person from Wind Waker who is actually still alive, uh, which we actually start the game with him. And then we have a mini quest involving him. And of course, he is quite old, as you'd imagine for someone who is over a hundred at this point in time. Although we do get an idea of the general lifespan of these people based on that gentleman, because he was he was a kid, uh, you know, teenager back in Wind Waker. So he's like 110, 120 ish, something like that. Uh, there's an interesting scene between Byron and Engine, and it's funny because I find myself sympathizing with Byron more than I probably should. Uh, he's obviously self-interested, he's obviously selfish, but his statements kind of ring true in a weird way, and, and draw some parallels to Twilight Princess, actually. He served the good spirits, and did everything they asked, and was, was completely on board with it, and they gave him nothing. They, they said, nope, screw you. And he was doing that specifically because he wanted that power, for whatever reason. Unfortunately, we don't really get a good idea of why he wanted that power. I've said this before, and I've said this again. There really isn't such a thing as wanting power for its own sake. You want power to do, because power is just a tool. You don't just want tools. You want tools so you can use the tools. Um, so we never really find more about his character, which is a bit of a pity. But I do, I, like I said, I find myself sympathizing with him more than I really should. Because, I mean, they were kind of dicks to him, weren't they? Or were they? Because, again, that brings out the whole, your heart wasn't pure idea. Eh, I got nothing to add to that. Uh, there were some definite Star Wars parallels between in the scene between Engine and, uh, and Byron, I will say that. 
Um, I think I may actually have run out of my notes here, other than the big one, dun, 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 which... Yeah, okay, so let's talk, let's talk about the Phantoms. Okay, so, uh, as I mentioned before, the Phantoms are actually people, or were people, because the Phantoms are made of the sand, and the sand is life force, and life force is made of people you know, who, who have died or moved on or whatever. So, yeah, the Phantoms are literally the uh, forms given uh, to dead people, for all intents and purposes. Um, it's never stated outright, but it is very strongly implied in, in both in their dialogues and all the dialogues about them that these are the same phantoms from Phantom Hourglass that have been carried here because what else are they going to do? Because remember, those phantoms were being controlled back in Phantom Hourglass by Bellum directly, and once they were released, well, now they're here, and they act like normal people. They're like, oh, yep, another day at work. Ah, oh, it's too hot in here. Ah, oh, I can't wait to go back to my thing. You know, you get the idea that they were given the job of guarding the Spirit Tower to give them something to do, to try and give them some kind of a life now that they're stuck in this horrible form. It's partially played for laughs, but if you think about it, it is kind of a horrible tragedy, really. You have been ripped out of the natural cycle of life, for all intents and purposes, and now you have to make do with the life you have. It is very similar to what most undeath stories tend to do with that kind of a concept. Of course, this brings me back to the big point. The life stream idea, which uh, after replaying this game, I now 100% think that my theory back in Phantom Hourglass is true. Let me back up a little for uh, back up a bit here, though. So, force gems, right? Force gems are in uh, in this game. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, those were in uh, Four Swords Adventures. They were supposed to be in the Minish Cap. If you do a little looking, the Japanese word for force gems, light force. Uh, and like two other things, and the life, uh, and the life force, and the light force, and force gems, and I like one other thing. It's all the same word in Japanese. There's no distinction. It is all the same thing. So the essence that was in Minish Cap, the uh, energy that was being claimed by Bellum in uh, Phantom Hourglass, the uh, the the chunks of whatever you were getting in Four Swords Adventures, and I think the the crystals you get in Skyward Sword, and of course the gems in this one that you get for doing mini quests. All of this is the same material. In other words, there is an energy thing, a, a series of crystals, which are crystallized life energy, which can be artificially extracted or naturally extracted, thanks to gratitude, which can enable someone in order to use them to either power something or create something or whatever. And these very tracks that this world is made of, this you know, the world of spirit tracks, uh, is made of are actually powered by life energy, uh, which also makes a bit of sense because, as we've learned a bit, coal was running the country into the ground, so it makes sense that the general life force of the country as a whole would have gone down, hence fewer spirit tracks. Um, this, uh, so this is, uh, th like I said, this, this ties back into that whole life stream idea. Uh, that I mentioned earlier, that there is this cycle of life. You know, you die, you come, this life energy which goes over to the phantom uh, sea, in Phantom Hourglass, runs through its cycle there, gets sent back here, etc. The interesting thing, though, is that this life energy and this life force, like I said, can be extracted naturally. This is how I... Uh, it, this is mentioned outright. This is stated outright in this game. Although, this also is why I parallel this to the Gratitude Crystals, or whatever they were called, uh, back in Skyward Sword. Because you don't have to literally rip the life force out of someone in order to do it. You can just make sure they're happy. Uh, I love the setting implication of this. If you have a country that runs on this energy source, that country will be great as long as they're happy. 
the moment you start to worsen conditions, the moment the people start to have unrest or reasons to have unrest, you'll literally have infrastructure problems because your your engines won't work as well. I love that concept. It's something that I, I think I might borrow uh, for something in the Imperium in the future because it's a great idea. Um, the, uh, what else? Hang on. The, uh... oh yeah, so yeah, last, last note here. Um, I've been talking through several of the games, and I swear I didn't intend this when I started, about how the descendants of Skyloft have been having their influence felt through most of the games. I find myself wondering if that is not true here as well. Uh, let me back up a little bit for what I mean for that. The, um, the Minish, as I postulated, and I, I think this much more strongly too, having gone back and reread a few things, after looking at Minish Cap, were people from Skyloft, whether they were the actual Skyloftians or whether they were you know people who grew up there that nobody was aware of during Skyward Sword or whatever. I do strongly think those were denizens of Skyloft who descended in order to give us the sword. Blah blah blah. You know all the stuff that happened in, in prior to Minish Cap with me, and those people uh, I I strongly postulate were involved with a lot of the aspects of the more mystical side of things when it comes to the series. The Kukiri are a good example of this. So we have these uh, these good spirits and these bad spirits and all that fun stuff. Is it not within the realm of feasibility that the good spirits and the bad spirits battle has actually been a byproduct of that? Remember, these are people who use what are effectively gratitude, gratitude crystals as their primary function. They did this before we ever showed up, by the way, before the Hyruleans ever showed up. The new Hyruleans, excuse me. Uh, the new republic, not the old republic, and these, um, and so they, they, there's obviously a connection to that. Now they could have just discovered it independently, or it could be parallel development. But in this timeline, what actually happened to the Minish is they turned into the Koroks, who I, I have to point out are not even present here at all, or the Rito for that matter, which I find interesting. Um, and yet we have all of this technology, all of this, this society that functions basically off of the same ideas. So maybe? I don't know. I'm just speculating at this point. I actually don't have much else to share. Uh, I, I think this game, uh, the biggest thing that really uh, drove, drove this game home for me lore-wise was this completely solidified my idea of the live stream idea within the Zelda series. Uh, which doesn't surprise me that much. The concept of a reincarnation cycle is, is pretty common in Japanese culture, uh, especially, excuse me, Japanese fictional culture uh, in general, so that's not a big thing. Next week, we'll be taking a look at a much larger game, which I'm not even done through right now as I record this. Uh, I'm already like four pages in on notes on Twilight Princess. And then I'll be picking up a game I've never played before, Link Between Worlds, for a blind lore run, or a blind rumination, but anyways... See you next time, guys.